Okay, we're going to read this morning from 1 John um, chapter 1, verse 35 through the end. The next day, again, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, Come, and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, Follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Jesus answered him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Good morning. There's there's just so many things to unpack with those verses. And and we can't hit them all, but we're going to... We're going to continue trucking through. Uh, John is, uh, John's continuing to bring it. Sometimes we forget that like a real person wrote this and I would love to do a series in our church on scripture and maybe uh, de- deconstruct, poke some holes in some weird notions we have about scripture and talk about what scripture actually is and what we mean when we say it's the word of God. But there was a real human being who wrote these words down and he really lived. And, and so, and unless you think that only works through God sticking his fist through the back of someone's brain and working them like a puppet to wake up in the morning and say, poof, golden tablets, there's scripture. That's Mormonism. That's not what we believe, right? The word is inspired. God has put his words in there and they wrote it. But also, John is not some automaton robot. Like he's guiding you to understand something. He's also John the disciple. And so Jesus, God intentionally used him because there's some of John's personality, some of his brilliance, similar to Paul. When Paul was having someone scribe for him and write, or Paul would write things with his hand, Paul was brilliant. He had things to say. And so as we read 1 John, you'll hear me and some of their shepherds say things like, John wants you to know this. And it's important to recognize because we can't remove scripture from the humanity. It's there because these are humans like us and God's trying to communicate with us and God created us and he's trying to have an understanding of who he is. And so if it's certainly the word of God, it's certainly inspired by God. It's certainly given to us by God to know him, but God used humans for that. And he uses their emotion and their flavor. That's why you can read the Psalms and you hear people be like, why God? 
That's why you have people write things in Scripture that would be a terrible way to start a religion, like bringing in all the women folk. Like, these people saw real things, and they had real emotion, real experience with it, and they wrote it down. That's not in my notes. That's an aside. I literally just wrote Intro John in my notes to start off with, so this is, you're just getting the grab bag thought as uh, before we get into this. But I think it's interesting because as we start John, we've been in John chapter 1 for so long, and we could have spent three more weeks in it, but we decided, or maybe I just decided, I don't know where Adam and Jimmy are at. Someone decided this as we were talking and Ethan, but we got to cut this off because we've got a, I mean, John is just going and we've got stuff to do. So if you want to grab a Bible or if you have one of these, if you don't own one of these, it's, uh, there's tons of them over there. You can just go grab one. It's literally just the gospel of John, right? And so it's a journal so you can read and write about it, but we want to study what Jesus says, what the Lord tells us about Jesus. Last year, we read through the whole Bible, and we discovered that the Bible is one unified story that points to Jesus, King Jesus, right? And so now, we're just going to slowly read. Who is King Jesus? Like, what, what, is this, what does this mean? What should this mean for us? And as John closes kind of his introduction, right? John said all these doctrinal and theological things that we've unpacked for several weeks, right? But as John closes that, you see Jesus doing this thing. He's talking to people, and he's calling them to follow him. And uh, I could list all these things that have happened in the synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. I had all these verses say, man, this is just what Jesus did. Jesus started off calling people to, to follow him. That was his thing. Repent, the kingdom of God is at hand. Believe in the gospel, follow me, right? And we want to unpack this morning what that means, because after this, after today, this sermon, we're going to be in John chapter 2, and then you get stories and teachings and stories and teachings back to back to back. So this is me finishing up the introduction of John by saying, hey, this sounds like a narrative, but John's crafty. John is pulling you slowly into a narrative to say, hey, this is how you need to think about the whole rest of this book. Come and see. Follow me. This is what the story is about. It's about following a young Jewish rabbi from Nazareth. Can anything good come from Nazareth? Gemini. Insert your favorite town there. I think of Holt Summit and Taos, maybe Tebbets. I don't know. Can anything good come from Taos? What even is Taos? Where is it? You know, like it's just, I don't know. Uh, but no offense. I'm just kidding. Uh, some of you might be from there. You might live there. I don't know. Um, Tebbets people, where are you at? There's a couple of you. Yeah. So ding, ding. That's it. Can anything good come from, this is uh, for free, but if you ever want to know this idea of Nazareth, there's no prophecy in the Old Testament that Jesus would be from Nazareth. Um, but someday, ask me about Sticktown, because Nazareth is literally interpreted as Sticktown in Hebrew. Jesus was Sticktown from Stick person. So if you're from the Sticks, you can relate to Jesus, right? Uh, or, or some people, like I met an Australian recently or a North African, they both said we're from the bush, which is how we would say we're from the sticks. Same sort of idea. We're from literally nowhere, where the bushes and sticks live. That's where we exist. That's where Jesus is from. Again, not in my notes, but you can ask me about that sometime, about Stick Man from Stick Town. We're going to read this again, and I, there's so many things I want to point out, but I just want to say, if those of you who are doing this, if you're saying, I'm going to read through John, and I'm just going to wrestle through it with the church, then I want you to reread this at some point this week, 31, uh, 35 through 51, and pay attention to what is seen and what they saw. Anytime the word see, saw came up, see, saw, right? Anytime that comes up, pay attention. Because John uses that word a ton in this section for a reason. And what is found? The word found is in there a ton. Why? What is John trying to say? 
something is being seen, not just literally with their eyes, but their word for see. Um, it'd be cool if I could think of the Greek word off the top of my head. But their word for see is also to know, to perceive, to take in, and to experience. It's all of it together. And we use the same sort of idea. When you see something, you're not just literally seeing it with your vision. You're also taking it in. You're experiencing it. Have eyes to see that sort of language. And so reread this. This is just homework, right? Maybe I should have given this at the end of the sermon. Uh, don't get nervous. It's not the end. We just started. Okay, we're like a minute and a half in maybe. I can't tell time. But uh, reread it. What is seen and what is found? And why does John want you to know that? Those are things that had to be taken out of my notes this morning so we ain't got time to talk about them. But pay attention to that. Read this again. John 1. We're just going to read 35 through 43. The next day, again, John was standing with his two disciples. Say disciples. Fantastic. Say disciples. Man, y'all just, you're not here. Am I going too fast? Do we need to calm down? I didn't wear a suit. Is that what it is? Like everyone, you're all disappointed. Move on. We've, we've been, some of you, we've been doing this for like six, seven years now. Like I don't wear a suit every Sunday. I'm sorry if you're disappointed. Let's read the word of the Lord. Okay. The next day, again, John was standing with two of his disciples and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him saying this, and they followed Jesus. We just miss this, but I think it's so funny. Like, these guys have been living, abiding with, following John. And John says, there's the Lamb of God, and they say, deuces, John, we going with that guy. He's just gone. His homies, they're just leaving. I think it's kind of funny. Poor John. Now, we'll cover that in a few weeks. John talks about he must increase, I must decrease. Jesus' ministry usurps John, and John's like, that's the point. We're going to talk about that. I think Nathan's going to cover that in a few weeks. But anyway, so uh, they leave and they follow Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following, and he said, what are you seeking? What are you seeking? You know, we don't know the, the inflection there. But he sees them and said, what are you seeking? Some translations, they have a different translation. Does it say, what are you doing? That's a fun translation, because that word can be there too. Like, what are you doing? Quit following. No, not really. But it's Jesus turns and says, what are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi. Immediately call him Rabbi. That's interesting. Rabbi, which means teacher. I don't like that the ESV just says, which means teacher, because it completely neuters the idea of a rabbi to us. We're just like, oh yeah, teacher, like a, a Sunday school teacher, like uh, an elementary school teacher. Nope, we're going to cover that here in a minute. But Rabbi, which means teacher. Where are you staying? He said to them, come and you will see. So they came and saw. Isn't that interesting? I think it's cool how John crafted that. Come and see. So they came and saw, right? It turns out that that's a discipleship in a nutshell. Poof. End of sermon, right? Come and see. They went and saw. Done. They went and saw where he was staying. And they stayed with him that day for it was the 10th hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother, Simon, and said to him, we have found the Messiah, which means Christ. John whispers, that, that's, the, that's Christ, that's the Messiah. We brought him, he brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. A lot there, we, we can't unpack that today. Verse 43, the next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee, like you do, and he found Philip and said to him, say, follow me. That's what Jesus says. That's what Jesus says to his disciples, what he's saying to you this morning. Let's pray. God, I pray your spirit would guide us. We acknowledge that we don't have a shot at being in your presence. We don't have a shot of abiding with you. We don't, we, we, 
Apart from you, we can do nothing, and it is your spirit that allows us to abide with you. We pray your spirit would give us eyes to see, ears to hear, that we would see what you desire us to see, that your word would bear its weight on us, and that we would follow Jesus. Teach, teach us what that looks like in each of our lives as, as a church. We want to follow you. Amen. If, you, if I were to summarize these verses and, and we went and unpacked, if we took like 30 minutes to unpack every piece of what happens in John talking about seeing and what they saw and what they found, we could conclude by saying Jesus is walking around and he sees people, but he sees them beyond what they see. And that's the point. That's why the whole weird story uh, was a Nathaniel who's like, like, you know, oh, he's losing his mind. You saw me under the tree? And Jesus is like, you believe because I saw you under the tree? It's because seeing is a different idea than just like, Hey, I saw him over there. And he's like, oh, you saw me over there 200 yards. You got really good eagle eyes, Jesus. I must follow you. That's not what he's saying. He saw him. Jesus sees things beyond what we see. He's seeing, he's piercing. And there's a message there. Whole other sermon we could do on how Jesus sees you. He knows you. He sees and perceives beyond what you see. Beyond what you try to hide, he sees. And Nathaniel gets it. He's like, okay, oh, man, if you're, gonna, if you're the one who truly sees, you must be truth. You must be life. You must be all these things. So I must be following you. Jesus sees differently than other people. And so Jesus sees people, and as he sees them, he calls them to come and come and see. Come and see where I'm staying. Come and see where I'm abiding to stay with him, to learn from him, to abide with him. We're going to uh, do a quick Greek thing here. Um, boom, it's already up there. So the, uh, do we want to do the chalkboard today? Let's do it. No one grumbled in time, so you lost your shot to tell me no. Um, oh, we might not have chalk. That's okay. What? Oh, there it is. Okay. Look at that. Keith was like that guy that's like, hey, are we going to turn in our math homework at the end of class? So all of you who didn't, you, some of you got that reference. All of you who didn't want the chalkboard, you have this moment of like, oh, he doesn't have chalk. But then Keith says, no, there's chalk over there. Sorry, you have to turn your math homework. You don't get a buy. That would drive me nuts. Like, who does their math homework? Says the guy who, gosh, took geometry twice, algebra twice. So, but like, who does math homework? And then at the end of the class, there's that one student, there's one minute remaining. Teacher, are you going to collect our math homework? Shut up. Like, no, he's the teacher. He's autonomous. He decides. Hmm, 10 points gone for me. You can tell I'm so angry about this. There's a Greek word here. We've got to come back. This is not math class, okay? Following Jesus. There's a word here where they say, uh, Jesus says, what are you seeking? What are you seeking? And they say to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, what's their question to him? They don't say, what are you teaching? They don't say, what you got, boy? They don't say, I love you. I'm so moved by you, heavenly father made into human form. No, what are, they simply ask a question. What is it? Where are you staying? The Greek word is meno. Say meno. You might know it from the popular children thing. Is that Paul Vischer? They've got the Mino thing, M-I-N-N-O, right? So that's where they get this from, right? It's a word that means abide, to dwell with, to exist among, to literally live with. You don't just go and stay with your children. You abide with them. You don't stay with your spouse. You abide with them. You don't go and visit a good friend. You would hope to spend a few days abiding with them, to spend time with them, to dwell amongst them, right? It's, it's a measure of, of intentional intimacy relationship. It means to be with, and it's a word that's used a ton in John, more than any other book in the Bible. John wants you to me know. 
And here's the first time it's used. Where are you staying? And that should be weird to us. Why are they asking where he's staying? Why? Where are you abiding is the, is the phrase here. And so look, it says, where are you abiding? Where are you, Mino? And he said to them, come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was Mino. So Jesus doesn't say, I'm staying over here. I've got this little campsite outside of Galilee. Like, no, that's not what he says. He says, come and see. And so they went and saw, and they understood where he was abiding. John wants you to see the depth of it. It's not just physical. There's something beyond this happening. They're abiding with him. More on that in a minute. So they came and they saw where he was staying, Mino, and they Minoed with him that day, right? And so then you go, you continue on to, so they, they become his disciples. They call him rabbi. And the word disciple is only used in Matthew here, referring to John's disciple. Because what's happening is they're moving from being John's disciples to moving to be Jesus' disciples. And we know that because in John chapter 2, it starts off and says, Jesus' disciples. And so it begged the question, who are his disciples? These people, <laughs> They stopped being John's disciples. They started following Jesus. They're abiding, Mino, with him. Say abide. This is all of John. Oh, I'm going to run out of room. You type A people are so upset. There's no room here. There's, we've messed this up. That was not any better. That's okay. They're abiding with him. That's what's happening. This is all of John. This is discipleship. You want to understand what it means to go you therefore and make disciples? It's to Mino. It's to abide. And before we unpack the first century understanding of that, and I'm going to geek out here for a minute, and I'm sorry if like you hate the History Channel and you want to sleep for a little bit, that's fine. But before we get in that, just understand that this is a concept that makes sense to us. All deep relationships in your life have some version of abiding. You don't have a best friend that you've never abided with. You don't have a spouse that you don't abide with. You don't have a good relationship with your children if you don't abide with them. And those of you who have a strange, distant relationship from uh, uh, an ex-girlfriend or a spouse or, or anything that you wish was different, you wish you could abide with them. If you have someone that you deeply love that's passed away, you wish you could abide with them. There's country songs written about just one more day with you. Just They're talking about abiding. This is the idea. It's a deeply meaningful concept. And Jesus is saying, hey, whatever you're seeking, it's found in abiding with me, dwelling with me. Let's talk about discipleship. Who here, does anyone... Uh, it's always dangerous to ask people a question about things outside of church at church because people are afraid of being wrong and everyone judging them. But we're not a judgmental group here. Like, we've talked a lot about that. Jesus says not to judge, right? Which means to look down on people, to try to squash them, to see them beneath you. We're all judged before God. So don't feel judged. Just curious, have you heard the word disciple or discipling or discipleship outside of church? Can anyone think of when the word's used? Is it just a churchy word? I was kind of wrestling with that today. Anyone have an example? Huh? Mentor? Okay. Is there any like, I don't know, is there like any songs, popular shows, anything that talks about disciples? Wasn't there like a biker gang that was disciples? Did I make that up? I didn't even look at it. Okay, some of you are shaking your head. I, I'm interested because, so the word discipleship I think is pretty foreign to us. Let's do this. Talk to me. Those of you, I mean, some of you, raise your hand if you've been in the church or been a Christian longer than 10, 15 years, or you saw the 70s and Jesus at the same time. Fantastic. That's a lot of you. So um, maybe that's an easier way to ask that. So the, the word disciple or, or Jesus freak or whatever it is, they, they've all kind of, there's several words for it. What do you think of when you think of a disciple? What is a disciple? Just street level. I'm a, a, you, you might be a disciple if, like if uh, uh, Jeff Fox were to write jokes about it, but seriously, what is a disciple? Follower? Follower? What else? A student. Okay. That's interesting. Separate that. 
a copier. Listener. Let's get past writing, because maybe some of you want to say things longer than I can write, and you're sick of my handwriting. What, uh, what else is, uh, what, uh, what do a disciple do? If you were to see a disciple on the street, what are they doing? Witnessing? Sharing? I'm not fishing for an answer. This is just an open dialogue. In the 70s, they wore orange robes. Fascinating, I don't know. And begged. I don't know that. That's, that's cool. So disciples are, are doing something, and you, you know someone is a disciple of something when you see it. I'm just fascinated in this because I feel like, as I've been studying this this week, this churchy word, like, loses. We read that, and we think, oh, a disciple is someone who, like, is it, how many church attendances do you have before you're a disciple? How much of your Bible have you read before you're a disciple? Your, your kids who recently accept Christ, when are they a disciple? What, what, how, how does that happen? And I think it's a question worth wrestling with. Now, with all those thoughts in mind, hopefully, oh, maybe I'm not a disciple. Think about that. What does that mean? Like, how would you know if you're not a disciple? How would you know if you are? That seems to be what Jesus cares about. Okay, let's talk about first century for a minute. In the, uh, the Hebrew word for disciple, anyone know it? We've talked about it once. Talmudim. Say Talmudim. Talmudim. Man, I just, gosh, why do I do this? You guys wish I had some digital versions, don't you? Talmudim, right? That is the Hebrew word for that. Jesus did not invent this idea. Believe it or not, there were disciples hundreds of years for Jesus. In fact, it's actually mostly secular. It goes back before that. Um, we know that, uh, I want to get these names right because I was mixing it up in my head earlier. Um, Plato was a disciple of Socrates, and we have see writings about that. Around the time of Jesus, Rabbi Hillel, he had 70 disciples. There, there are several understandings of disciples. He didn't invent this, and I think that's important because we want to pretend like, oh, this is what discipleship looks like. We talked about this in 2020 at one point. I walked through what a disciple looked like. I'm going to give you a crash course in it now. There are three levels of discipleship in, uh, in Hebrew, or at least in Hebrew school, there are three levels of things. The first one is called Beit Sefer. Beit Sefer. And this idea was, everyone does, like grade school, right? And you went there and you studied the Torah. You memorized the uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. You memorized the 618 laws. This was your role. And so from the age of like zero to 12, as soon as you could get into school, whatever that was, two or three years old, they were there and they were in this version of school and they were studying uh, young Jewish people in Beit Sefer. Uh, it means house of the book. And that's what they're studying. They're studying the book. Now, um, when you were done with this, right? Then you mostly just went on. You graduated, you were 12, 13, you got married, you apprenticed under your daddy's stuff, and you became a carpenter or a, a stone worker or a fisherman or whatever. That's what you were doing. And so, side note, anyone in scripture that's mentioning having another job, it means they only have the base level of knowledge. They did not, they weren't special. They wouldn't go beyond this. They just made it through level one. If you're a video game person, do you get very far in the video game with just being level one? No. No one wants to stay at level one, but this is, this is their standard. They weren't special beyond this. They went off and got married. But if they were, if they were the best of the best, they would go on to Beit Talmud, which this is house of learning. This is ages 12 to 14, uh, the best of the best. And they would memorize all of what we would call the Old Testament, um, give or take some things. But most of the Old Testament, they're memorizing, they're wrestling with it. And this was the best of the best. Only males were doing this, right? Now, after this... If you were really special, 
You would go through rigorous interviews. You would be talked to by a rabbi. They would ask you, hey, do you, do you believe in uh, uh, Rabbi Shemoy's thoughts on um, the Nephilim or whatever? And they just go through all these deep things. What's your thought on dispensationalism? Not, they wouldn't talk about that. That's new and silly. But they, they would just wrestle with those things. And so, but they would argue and they'd wrestle these things. And then if they were selected, they were the best of the best. They made it to level three. A rabbi would say, come follow me. He would select them to be a Talmudim, to be a disciple, and they would abide with him. This was a common understanding. We use terms like uh, disciple or learner or student. The problem is those things reduce the understanding because you never abided with your second grade math teacher, right? You didn't abide with your college professor, you might be really great student of C.S. Lewis, but you're certainly not abiding with him. Their understanding of discipleship, when you were the best of the best, and by the way, you had to climb over other people to get there. You had to be better than everyone else. Then you could become a Talmudin. And the ridiculous notion of Jesus of Nazareth was he was a young rabbi constantly upsetting the wagon cart, the apple cart, wagoning the apple cart. He was doing stuff to upset people. That's the point. And so he was going around and he was calling all these people who should not have been selected. They were already cast out. In fact, some of them were seen as disgraceful and sinful. And Jesus would say, abide with me, come follow me. Or those would find him and say, where are you staying? And you don't see an intense interview between Jesus and the two disciples of John that left. Jesus isn't saying, oh, are you worthy of level three? Have you passed your, your prerequisites? No. Jesus says, come and see. And they go and they abide with him. There are three goals to be a Talmudin. Three goals. You have to be with your rabbi, abide. You become like your rabbi. That's why I say, follow me. Do what I would do. And then you do what the rabbi does. Ultimately, you're hoping for a rabbi again. Jesus isn't doing anything crazy when he says, go and make disciples. Rabbis would do this. They'd say, go and make disciples. Teach them what I've taught you. This was basic understanding. This was happening secular, Christian. It was happening all over. Hebrew it was happening all over. But Jesus says he does it differently. He invites all these outsiders in and he tells them, you're my disciple, you're my Talmudin. Jesus sees, Jesus calls. Look at verse 38 again. Jesus turned and saw them falling. He says, what are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? And he said, come and you will see. Where are you abiding? The implication is we, we would like to abide with you. Will you choose us? Will you, will you do the rabbi thing and say, come and follow me? And Jesus doesn't put them through some rigorous interview. He says, come and follow me. Why does John put this here? Because John is inviting every single person who's reading the gospel to come and see. He's inviting you centuries later. Hey, you want to understand what, what is life? In him was life, and that life was the light of men. You want to understand all these things that he said Jesus is? Uh, so far, you hear these disciples already. They claim John says he's the Lamb of God. Then uh, one guy says he's the Messiah. Verse 45, uh, him who was in Moses and the law and all the prophets wrote. Verse 49, he's the Son of God, the King of Israel. Verse 51, Jesus says he's the Son of Man. All these things, John's saying, hey, he's the big everything. This guy's everything. And instead of him having some rigorous standard, he just simply says, come abide with me be his disciple, which means we have to be asking ourselves, what are we seeking? Like, what are you seeking? And, and, and I don't want to like throw all these different things in there because we could talk about all the different analogies of things you might be seeking and struggling with. But we've talked before up here, you know, how you spend your days is of course how you spend your life. 
How you spend your time is how you spend your life. How you spend your money in our culture is how you spend your life. What are you seeking? What does your bank account say about what you're seeking? What does your hours of your day say about what you're seeking? What does the, the wanderings of your mind say about what you're seeking? What does your internet history say about what you're seeking? Like what, what does your, your TikTok feed say about what you're seeking? What are you seeking? Jesus' implication is, whatever you're seeking, you will find it if you abide in me. You must abide in Jesus. And so, to be a disciple of Jesus must mean that we need to be with Jesus, to become like Jesus, to do what he would do if he were you, and then to go and live teaching others to become disciples. This is what it means to be a disciple. So, we're going to spend the rest of the time this morning talking about how we do that. And, and this concept of discipleship spans all of the New Testament, uh, tons of stuff in the Old Testament, and we're going to talk about the Holy Spirit, and we, we simply don't have time to cover everything. And so if you have a concept on discipleship that we're missing up here, we've got like 20 more chapters of John we're going to get through, and we're going to hopefully unpack more of these things. But I want us to talk about this morning, how do we abide? How do we be a Talmudian? We're supposed to be with Jesus. What does that mean? Because if you're like me, there are several moments in your day where you might not think you're with Jesus. <laughs> You might have this moment. We talked about this with distraction. We talked about this with uh, um, our, our timing, distraction, and man, I preached on this a couple weeks ago. I can't remember. I've had a baby since then. But uh, we talked about how there are so many things that pull us away from the Lord. Like, man, I just forgot. I just didn't have time. So distracted. Jesus helps us in John 14. I don't want to unpack these verses a ton. If you could turn to John 14. Uh, we're going to get to John 14 eventually when we go through this, so, so it's tough when we go forward in John, but we're going to be in John 14 and 15 for a handful of minutes here, if you want to turn there. John 14, starting in verse 15, and then we'll uh, jump down to 23. Jesus says to his disciples, this is uh, um, the night uh, before his, uh, he's going to be betrayed. This is a last teaching time. He's got the disciples. It's a meaningful time. Uh, he's uh, rode in already. There's a big stuff happening here. And Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Ooh, and, and those of us already here, wait, what's the greatest commandment? To love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. To love your neighbor as yourself. Now Jesus just cuts the chase. If you love me, you will obey my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you, read it, another helper. Some translations, who's got translations advocate? Yeah, my man. That's a much better translation in my opinion. So, uh, but that's okay. Bible translation is difficult. Don't get weirded out. There's not one that's better than all the others. It's just, it's hard. It's hard taking a dead language and bringing it up. It's, it's tricky. But advocate's a really helpful word there. But I will give you another helpful advocate to be with you forever even the spirit of truth. So what is this helper and advocate? First thing Jesus defines it as the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him. There's this idea of seeing again or knows him. Same word. You know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. I'm going to give you a help for an advocate and he will be with you. The spirit of truth. He'll be with you. He'll be in you. Verse 23, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. We will abide with them. Isn't that beautiful? We're trying to abide with him, but he says, if you follow me, if you love me, you're trying to follow my word, if you believe in me as John also uses that word, I will abide with you. He's now abiding with us. 
Whoever does not love me does not keep my word. And the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. Verse 25. These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you, but the Helper, the Advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name. Remember, this is the Spirit of truth. The Spirit's going to dwell inside you. What is this Holy Spirit? What does it do? You type A practical people. What is this thing? This Holy Spirit, what does it do? This verse is worth its weight in gold. Memorize it. What is the Holy Spirit? Jesus defines it. He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. Not as the world gives you do I give you. Let not your hearts be troubled. Neither let them be afraid. This word in Hebrew for Holy Spirit or the helper, the advocate is paraclete. And it's interesting that Jesus calls it another paraclete, another advocate, implying that there is there is a first advocate, right? If you were with us last week, who's the first advocate? Jesus is your advocate. More on that in a minute. But Jesus says, I'm going to give you another advocate, another paraclete, and it's going to be with you. It's going to be in you. It'll be with you. How long? Forever. That's forever, if you don't understand the definition. It's going to be in you. And what's the Holy Spirit going to do? It's going to teach you all things and bring to remembrance all that Jesus has taught us. If you want to abide with Jesus, if you want to dwell with him, if you say you're a disciple, if you say I'm a follower of Jesus, the way you abide with Jesus must be through his Holy Spirit, period. That is the baseline. It must be through his Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit dwells in us because he's making his home in us. This is why verse 26 is so valuable, because it, it, he's teaching us all things and brings, if, if the goal of, follow me, if the goal of a, a Talmudim is to be with Jesus, to be like Jesus, and to do the things that he would do if he were you, if that's the goal, and then Jesus is saying, I'm going to send you an advocate, a helper, and this person's going to be, this, this spirit's going to be with you forever, it's going to be in you, and it's going to teach you all things and bring to remembrance all I've taught you right? You students, you Talmudim, you follower of me, he's going to bring to memory. It must be that the only way we abide in his teachings, the only way we love him is through his Holy Spirit. But we need Jesus, right? We have life through him. But if you're like me and you recognize, wait a minute, I, I don't think about Jesus all the time. I'm sinful. I struggle. I'm rebellious. In fact, you don't know me. You don't know I've gone through this week. Maybe you're sitting at home and you're like, I, I, I'm so far from this. You don't know how broken I am. I, it was everything I could do just to get here this morning, just to pay attention, just to tune in. Like, I'm so far from this. This is why John carries this, this other letter. He says in 1 John chapter 2, he says, My dear children, I'm writing to you that you may not sin, but if you do sin, we have an advocate, a paraclete, Jesus Christ the righteous. Jesus is standing before the Father. If you believe in him, Ephesians tells us if you believe in him, his spirit enters you. His Holy Spirit seals you in him. You have a right relationship. And Jesus Christ the righteous stands before the Father, advocating for you, saying, this one's mine. They belong to me. My blood covers them. My life, death, resurrection, it covers them. Now you get that. But here's the thing. Jesus did, gosh, what I've been wrestling with all week, church, is that there's not a single passage where Jesus has a chunk of teaching and then he says, uh, but don't worry about all this because I'm going to die and resurrect and you don't need to worry about it. Just believe. He never caveats anything. Jesus, hear me. Jesus really intends for you to follow him. 
Jesus really intends for you to follow him. Jesus really says, come and see, abide with me, follow me. I'm giving you my spirit so that you will have the remembrance of what I've taught you, so that he'll teach you all things. Jesus intends for you to live life differently. Why? We've taught this two weeks. I taught it Easter Sunday. I taught it when we first introduced John. Because Jesus is life. All your understandings of life, if it don't include Jesus, may you sit in insecurity and understand that your life is limited and wrong. Because Jesus is life. And I'm sorry if that offends you, but there has to be an objective standard. Otherwise, what are we doing? Go do whatever you want. Why do you have any sort of moral standards? Why do you vote the way you do? Why do you think people should drive a certain way? Why do you have any opinion on anything? It's meaningless if there's no objective standard. And God comes in and he says, hey, I want a right relationship with you. I'm the standard. I'm good. I created you. And if you want to have a right relationship with me, no one comes to the Father except through Jesus. He's the way, the truth, and the life. And so through our faith in Jesus, Jesus says, you must follow me. If we're not following Jesus, we're never shot. He gives us his spirit, his advocate. If you want some homework, go read John 15. It's about, about abiding in him and how, how the fruit connected to the vine and, and how if we're not connected to the vine, if the branch is not connected to the vine, it doesn't produce any fruit. It's one of my favorite verses. Jesus says, apart from me, you can do nothing. It's this beautiful understanding that we have to abide in him because in him is life. And the branch can't survive if it's not connected to the vine. It's a simple analogy. Anyone who's ever done any planting understands. You can't just cut off a branch and poof, it lives on its own. It gets its nutrients, it's connected to the vine. As we wrestle with abiding with him, what does it mean? We understand we need his spirit. There's a quote from Brother Lawrence. There's a little book in my pocket here. There'll be some up front. You can grab them. There's some on this table. It's called The Practice of the Presence of God. When we want to abide, Paul calls this, uh, he says, pray continually. It's an understanding of abiding in the presence of God. Uh, ancients who wrote about it, like Brother Andrew, who was a 17th century uh, French monk, French monk, he, uh, he practiced the presence of God. They use this phrase. How do we practice being in the presence of God? How do we abide with him? Here's a quote from Brother Lawrence. The time of business does not with me differ from the time of prayer. And in the noise and clatter of my kitchen, while several persons are at the same time calling for different things, I possess God in as great tranquility as if I were upon my knees. Whatever junk's going on in the kitchen, I possess God just as much if I were on my knees. He has uh, the Pilgrim's Prayer he wrote at the beginning of this book. It's not on screen, but it says... Lord of all pots and pans and things, make me a saint by getting meals and washing up the plates. It sounds like something a child would write, but it's beautiful that a monk, someone known for saying no to so many things in life so they could just be in the presence of God, he's come to write such a simple prayer. Lord of pots and pans, he says. If you want to abide with the Lord, you have to practice being in his presence. You have to understand that he lives in you. His spirit's in you. And so when you're washing dishes, when you're driving on your commute to work, when you're choosing what you're going to watch, what you do with your leisure time, when you're dating, when you're working out, when you're doing your budget, when you're stressed, angry, addicted, hurt, lonely, 
if you believe in Jesus, he says he's with you always. This is why he says, I'm with you always. He's in you that we would abide in him. We don't have a shot at following him. And therefore, we don't have a shot at life if we're not following him. And the concept of this idea of of Brother Lawrence saying, practice the presence of God, he wants you to understand you must practice it because it's hard. Of course it's hard. Why wouldn't it be hard? We have the world, the flesh, and the devil against us. And I don't have time to unpack that when we get to John 8. We're going to go hard on that. But in general, the world in Scripture, the cosmos, is this structure of things that are, are disorganized, that are broken, that have fallen apart, apart from the Lord. It's a pattern. There are patterns of the world. It's not just you. The world has had a pattern of brokenness that we continue to live in, and it is fitted against the Lord. There's the flesh, which is your natural desires. Your flesh is not inherently sinful, by the way. I'm sorry the NIV might have confused you with how it translated flesh and spirit. Your flesh is not inherently sinful, but our natural desire as humans is to say, you know what, I'm going to take a good thing like food or sex or, or whatever, and I'm going to just make it the biggest thing in the world. And I'm going to overindulge because what's most important to me is me and getting what I want. My life, my liberty, my pursuit of happiness, whatever that is. And so that's your flesh. You have the world, the flesh. These things are pulling against the body of God. And then you have the devil which Jesus simply says is the father of lies. And he puts before you all these lies. You don't need to abide with the Lord. You don't need to spend time. Why would you practice the presence of the Lord when you got to cook dinner? How in the world do you cook dinner with a baby in the bouncy seat and two boys trying to make bread because they remembered matzo bread from a couple weeks before and they're like, we got to make matzo bread right now. And your kitchen feels itty bitty. And then you've got little kids that aren't even your kids coming to get water cups. You're just like, everyone shut up and go away. I got to make dinner. How do you practice the presence of God? It's a practice. You're practicing the presence of God. You have to set before you. Listen, I believe that his spirit is in me. He promises he's with me always. Jesus said, I will give you the spirit forever. I'm sealed in that. And so even when I don't acknowledge it, even when I'm ignorant, stupid, selfish, whatever, I have the presence of God and I can choose to look to Jesus. This is why we say, look to Jesus in all parts of your life. It's our short speak for understanding this. Dallas Willard says, the first and most basic thing you can and must do is to keep God before our minds. This is the fundamental secret to caring for our souls. Our forgetter works really well. We have to practice seeking him. I'm going to close, and don't be deceived, there's there's a little more here, but I'm going to start closing by reading from Galatians 5. I want you to think through how the Spirit's talked about here. Galatians 5, starting in verse 16. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of your flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are the opposed to each other, to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual morality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgy, and things like these. Just take in for a minute. Where do you see this disorder and chaos in your life all around you? In your home, in your own life, in your heart? These are the works of the flesh. But the fruit of the Spirit, Jesus said in John 15, hey, you want to produce fruit? You have to abide in me. Paul's speaking of the same thing because Paul knows Jesus. Same analogy. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Verse 25, if we live by the Spirit, 
let us also keep in step with the Spirit. If we want to experience the life of Jesus, we have to be willing to live the lifestyle of Jesus. And he's given us everything we need. He's put his spirit in us. He's changed our hearts. He's, he's drawn us into him. In fact, I was, I was talking to someone recently who just like, man, struggles with, I don't know if I, I hear from the spirit and, and maybe they just keep, they almost idolize making it as this thing. It's not like, I don't know if I ever have these experiences. I'm just lower than everyone else. There are these people who talk about it so fancifully and I'm so off from that. Listen to Jesus' words. Listen to Paul's words. If the fruit of the Spirit is love, and the Holy Spirit has been put in you through your faith in Jesus Christ, and the Holy Spirit is supposed to teach you all things and bring to memory all the things that He's taught you, then any moment when you love people like Jesus, you must be hearing from the Spirit. Point blank. Tell me how it works otherwise. It can't be. That's, that's the only way. Anytime you're experiencing joy and suffering, true joy, the fullness of joy that Jesus promises. That must be from the Holy Spirit because that's what Jesus said. Anytime, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. And if you want any of those things, you're like, I want peace. I want joy. I want love. By the way, John 14, 15 is littered with love, joy, and peace. And Paul mentions those as the first three fruit. And Jesus says, hey, if you abide in me, these things come out of you. Why? Because the Spirit's in you. If you want to experience the life of Jesus, you have to be willing to live the lifestyle Jesus teaches. This is true in everything. I really want to be the 40-year-old guy someday that does muscle-ups and is really fit, but, you know, I know some of those guys, and I'm not willing to live that lifestyle. I'm just not, I'm not. I'm not going to change my diet. I'm not going uh, to keep practicing muscle-ups. I'm just, I'm probably not going to do that. And there are things, you might see runners run outside, and you might think, oh, I want to go run. But you're not going to wake up at 5 a.m. and go run tomorrow. You're not willing to live that lifestyle. You want the life without the lifestyle. Jesus says, follow me. Abide in me. Jesus is humanity and divinity. It's in the same place. If you want to know what it means to truly be human, to truly have life as a human, look to Jesus. If you want to know who God is, the heart of the Father, look to Jesus. This is who Jesus is. He's come to show us. In general, we want life without living a lifestyle, and Jesus calls us to be a disciple. I want to give some practical applications. There's more notes here. There's more Dallas Willard quotes. We're going to move on. If Jesus is the resurrection life, if Jesus is life, if Jesus is the only advocate for you, for your sinful nature, for your separation from God, if all those things are true, you have to understand Jesus isn't calling you. He doesn't just say, I'm saving you from hell. Poof. Say a prayer, and it's done. He doesn't say that anywhere. And I'm sorry if that discomforts your understanding of theology and your soteriology and whatever word you want to use. Jesus calls you to be his disciple. And this isn't a question of legalism. I'm not putting this weight on you of saying, well, you better do good. That's not the point. Because he's given you a spirit to abide with him. And he even covers that. He says, when you sin, we have an advocate, King Jesus. It's about progress, not perfection. Read the book of James. He's constantly calling us to follow him because there is a life, church. There is a way to truly live. And if we're not following Jesus, we're missing. And so I want to encourage you to think, what are you seeking? What is it in your life that you're looking for? How are you following Jesus? Because Jesus didn't just call you to mere church attendance or to fill your calendar with serving in the church. Jesus called you to abide with him. And I know a lot of people who've done a lot of church service that don't abide with Jesus. I know a lot of pastors who preach better than I do who don't abide with Jesus. And you see that in evidence in their lives long term. So what does it mean to abide with Jesus? 
It means to practice the things he told us. It means to be with Jesus. To live like Jesus. To do the things he would do if he were you. Act like Jesus. Take those things on. I want to give you two practical pieces of homework that, that I hope help. I'm sorry if, if timing's a burden for you right now, but just, just give me a couple more minutes. The Sermon on the Mount is bookended with two thoughts of practicing. In Matthew 5, 19, Jesus says, Therefore, anyone who relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the king of heaven. But whoever does them, uh, another word there could be practices them. Whoever practices these things I've taught you, whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. That's at the beginning of the sermon. At the end, Jesus says, Matthew 7, 24, Everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like the wise man who built his house on the rock. Jesus doesn't then go on to say, but don't worry because I'm going to resurrect, so live however you want. You won't go to hell. Never says that. Jesus says, if you want to have life, you will follow me. In the Bible, you are trajecting towards life and death. It's so important that you hear this because I love you, and I understand that as a church, as individuals, we struggle with this. There are areas in your life that aren't submitted to following Jesus. So how would you know? This week, start reading through the Sermon on the Mount. Maybe memorize parts of it and say, how am I practicing these things? What does fasting look like for me? What does prayer look like for me? What does loving my enemies look like for me? What does not being angry, maybe a lot of you need to stop there. What does not being angry look like for me? Let me tell you a quick list of practices of Jesus that are particularly meaningful to me. A few things. Silence and solitude. I would encourage you this week to wake up a hair earlier. Take 10 minutes and sit alone with the Lord. Hear me again, because some of you are already tuning out. Wake up early a few times this week and just sit 10 minutes in silence. I put my phone way away from me because I can't handle it. I'm a millennial who's addicted to my phone like so many of us around. Look at, the, look at the research. You're probably addicted to your phone. So set it away. Take a watch or whatever you need if you've never seen one of these digital things that keep time. I do an 11-minute timer because someone said do 10 minutes, and that's the kind of arrogant jerk I am. I had to do 11 minutes. But I've been doing this for about two and a half months, and it's been real hard since Titus was born. It's been real hard. But I did it again this morning, and I've had more, more times of hitting it, and I just sit. And listen to me. I make coffee, and I sit. And my goal isn't to talk. My goal is to listen. But sometimes I do talk. But even then, I'll tell you, more often than not, we're talking about two and a half, three months of me doing this. I don't have this great spiritual Holy Spirit experience often of like, thus saith the Lord, whoosh, you should feel this. Rarely. It happens sometimes. There are times where God says, hey, you're thinking this, you should preach this. Hey, you should text this person when you're done. There are times when I clearly feel the Lord's time. Thing. Most of the time, most of the time it's just existing. And I understand when Jesus says, my peace, I live with you. I understand John 15, 11, when he says, I have spoken these words so that your joy may be fulfilled. I experience joy and peace when I sit alone with the Lord and just abide with him. Maybe you need to open your hands, maybe you need whatever. I would encourage you to do that. Silence and solitude, practicing it has been, been a big thing for me. Breathing, breathing prayers, we've talked about this. Take a prayer in scripture and just take a moment in your day to stop right before you walk into work because your job really stresses you out and you can't find see. Sally today, I'm going to lose my mind. Take a minute, take a breath. The Lord is my shepherd. I have what I need. The Lord is my shepherd. I have what I need. We're abiding. We're having his presence in us. We know it's there. His power is inside of us. We're taking a moment to remember. 
because our forgetter works good. Slowly reading through scripture and praying scripture, but trying to have this habit of the words I say to God be his words because my words are arrogant, confused. So I pray his scripture. I pray scripture over my kids. I pray scripture over you all. Know his word and pray his word. Sabbath, man, we'll talk about Sabbath more in the future. My family has an intentional time, a whole day, once a week. We had to fight for it and we failed it a lot, but we fight for a day just to rest in the Lord just to abide. And those are, those are phrases, by the way. How do we Sabbath day? I don't know. We're just going to abide. How do we abide? I don't, I don't know. We're going to try to abide for the Lord. We're just going to enjoy what he's given us. Community, life sharing, uh, sharing life in Christ with others. God has called us to do these things together. None of this is a list for you. It's not something you go out and do. It's something that we are as one body. He's called us together in community. I can't emphasize enough Find ways to practice following Jesus. And John introduces us now to say, hey, come and see. That's, that's what it says. He says, Jesus turned and saw them and said, what are you seeking? Ask yourself, what is the Spirit telling? What are you seeking? What is it that you're wanting in life? You want something. Quit finding the churchy answer right now in your brain. Take, what are you really seeking? What is your time, your money? What are you seeking? They say, Rabbi, where are you staying? How do we abide with you? And he says, come and see. I'll show you. You abide with me. And then the rest of John is Jesus' life and teachings. And so after this week, that's what we're doing. And, and just so you know, after we get through John, uh, another 12 or 18 months, then we're going to do two or three months on just practices. What does it mean to practice following Jesus? What does he mean by Sabbath? What does he mean by fasting? So stick with us, because that's what we do. When people ask me, what, what, tell me about your church. Can I visit? What's your music like? I, 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 usually I don't answer any of the questions I want to hear. I just say, our church reads the Bible and tries to figure out how to follow Jesus together as one body. That's it. That's my one line. Who are we as memorial? Sure, worship, connect, grow, go. That's fine. That's your language for members here. We come together to figure out how to follow Jesus, King Jesus. And Jesus calls us to follow him. If you want to stand as we close, I, I don't have just a, hey, please perfectly think through this. I hope that in all this understanding of discipleship, you hear that Jesus is calling you to follow him. And I'm so moved that he meant it. He really intended us to practice, to live out the ways of him. He said hard things like when you fast, assuming that you fast. When you pray, assuming that you have a posture of prayer. And if you don't have these things, why aren't you practicing them? Let's do it together. This week, I would encourage you to practice just sitting in silence, just abiding with him. Say, God, I want to abide with you. And pray his scripture to him. You say your spirit will teach me all things and bring to memory all things that you've taught. Help me abide with you, Lord. Maybe you don't know Jesus. You can't possibly abide with him. You don't have his spirit in you. We want to talk to you about that. This is your moment. You can, you can give your life. You can simply open your hand and say, God, I want to abide with you. I want to have a right relationship with you. I believe that you want to advocate for me to free me from my sin, from my rebellion, so I have eternal life with you. This is your time to respond. And it, it can just be another time of singing a song and getting ready to do the next thing. That's fine. It's what you make it. But God's brought you here for a reason. And I've been really challenged this week to think through, how do I actually practice following Jesus? How has his spirit guided me to follow him? If my life doesn't look different, then maybe I don't really follow Jesus. And maybe it's just a political thing I like to check off. I'm a Christian, which is not a word used very often in the New Testament, by the way. In the Bible, people are known as brothers and sisters in Christ. They're known as people who follow the way. Are we following the ways of Jesus? What does that look like? Let's do it together. Father, I pray that you would guide us as we respond, as we, as we sing your words. Teach us to practice being in your presence. And it feels so big, and it feels like we need five more sermons on this concept. I feel like I've missed so many things. 
that, that you've been speaking. Father, I pray that you would guide us in this time of response and your spirit would teach us all things that your spirit would bring to memory the things that Jesus taught us and through that we would practice the ways of Jesus. Guide us as we respond to you right now, Father. Thank you for your love for us. Thank you for showing us your love by giving us your word, by giving us your spirit, by changing our hearts, by advocating for us, by saving us. Teach us how to follow Jesus. Reveal to us what we're seeking. May we seek you. May we look to you. Thank you, Father. Amen.